If you would, take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. After an opening prologue, John, in a pastoral manner, addresses, challenges, and answers three false claims of false prophets. Each one is introduced by the words, if we claim, verses 6, 8, and 10. Um, This is found in chapter 1, in case you're wondering. Make sure I'm in the right place here. The first claim is that sin does not affect our relationship with God. If we claim, verse number six, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. John answers that in verse number seven by saying, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all or every sin. Having spoken of the consequences of walking in darkness, he now speaks of the benefits of walking in the light, that we have fellowship with one another. One could argue, I think strongly, that if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship, common cause with God, who is light. But John goes beyond that and says that we will have fellowship with others who are walking in the light. I just want to mention something here that I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday. Um, I think there are times when we separate ourselves from others who believe as we do. And in fact, we come to the conclusion that we don't want to believe this particular thing because they do. Um, Walking in the truth, walking in the light is more than mere belief. It is fellowship. It is fellowship. And enlightenment, walking in the light, is communal, not individual. We're very American, very individualistic. It's all about me. And John says, no, if we walk in the light. Okay? The second benefit is that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all or every sin. And it is in the present tense, it speaks of a continuous action. The second false claim is that sin does not exist in our nature. Verse number eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In a sense, this is an extension of the first false claim. Here, the claim is they have no sin. That is, they have no need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. John answers in verse number 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The appropriate attitude toward sin is not to deny it, but to admit it, to receive the forgiveness God has made possible that he has promised. When we confess what we do is we agree with what God has said about our conduct, that it is wrong, that we are sinners by nature and by our practices. God will do two things. He will forgive our sins, amazingly, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why? Why would he do this? Because he is faithful and just. The third false claim is that sin does not show itself in our conduct. Verse number 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Again, it's, it continues the, the claim, the first two claims. It's sort of a thread. To say that we have not sinned is not merely to tell a lie. In verse number six, we lie and do not live by the truth. 
it is not only to be deceived, verse number 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but thirdly, it is to accuse God of being a liar. We say that God, in fact, has lied, because scripture tells us that all have sinned. John's answer is found in the first two verses of chapter 2. And you will notice that he doesn't do what he does previously. Um, he, He changes his approach. It might be, and I I think the reason he does this, it might be because of what he said previously, that some of the people here might think lightly of sin. Well, if I confess my sins, God will forgive me. He will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. John will have none of this. So he begins by saying, I write this to you that you will not sin. And he does so with pastoral tenderness. My dear children. Well, if he stopped there, then I think we would all be quite anxious if he tells us don't sin well yeah I I don't want to sin and yet I do but he continues but if anyone does sin we have one who speaks to the father in our defense Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world as I mentioned last week Jesus is presented here in three ways that first of all he is an advocate he is the defense attorney who stands next to us and pleads our case with the father he is the righteous one he isn't simply a good defense attorney he is a perfect he is righteous he is without fault because otherwise how could he plead our case he'd have to plead his own case but he in fact is without sin And thirdly, he is the one who makes payment for our sins. It isn't sort of a, you know, oh, don't worry about it. It's no no biggie. Uh, Sin is important. It is a violation. It is rebellion against God. Payment must be made. And he is the one who has made the payment. Why would he do that? And why would God the Father accept this? As we saw last week, it is because of their love. Thus far in this epistle, there have been, I would say, at least two defining aspects of the gospel proclamation. The first is the historical manifestation. God came in the flesh. And this is important in this epistle because that's who John's writing against. There are people who are saying, no, 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 Jesus wasn't who you say he was. Um, So the book opens that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. The the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So God, in fact, came in the flesh. The eternal God came in the flesh. In history, in human history, he was manifested. The second is the fact that God is light in contrast to darkness. These two truths, when you take them together, are foundational to what John wants to say about how we live our lives. Those who are God's people, how do we live our lives? If we call ourselves Christians, then the fact that God is light and the fact that God came in the flesh are foundational to that. Otherwise, what we do makes no sense whatsoever. And what we find with the false teachers, and sometimes in our own lives, is that their actions 
their living is not consistent with the fact that God is light or that God came in the flesh and lived a perfect life. So what John does is he gives three tests to deal with the relation of a person's life to God's truth. Three tests. We can call them the moral test, that is obedience, the social test, that is love, and then thirdly, the doctrinal test, that is belief in Christ. By the way, I will say this again as we go through First John, but when I started grad school uh, years ago at UCLA, um, one of the first classes I took, I was preparing for the final exam, and one of the things I noticed as I was going through my notes, I was reviewing, was I'm like, wait a minute. What my professor had been doing for 10 weeks was in the first couple of weeks, he gave us information. And then after that, he gave us the same information, but he expanded. And then once again, he gave us the same information, expanded, and he added more to it. That's what John does in this first epistle. He starts small and builds and builds and builds. So by the time we're done with 1 John, I mean, when we get to chapter 5, you're like, I've heard this before. Yes, you have. John is repeating himself, but adding to it as he goes along. Okay? So, chapter 2, follow along if you would as I read verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him, that we are God's people if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But anyone who obeys his word, God's love, or one's love for God, is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. There are two key words in 1 John. Most people would say the first key word is love. And in fact, Augustine said that this is the theme of 1 John, is love. But a word that shows up more times than love, love shows up over 25 times. In, in a short epistle, that's quite amazing. But a word that shows up even more than that is no. More than 30 times we see the word no in 1 John. As John writes it, there are actually two different Greek words he uses, and that's why in English it isn't always translated as we might want. But the significance of this is that the false teachers were saying to other Christians, we know, we have knowledge. And in fact, this heresy came to be known as the Gnostic heresy, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, that is knowledge. So they claim to have special knowledge. So this is how John begins his uh, rebuttal, if you wish, or this is now the second time around as he rebuts what they have to say. They claim to be enlightened with true knowledge. Well, what are we supposed to do if somebody comes to us and says that they have knowledge, but they in fact are in error? They are in fact wrong. John wants to provide us tests so that we can be able to tell whether or not someone is in error. Now, the issue is not knowing God, okay? As though this is something impossible and the false teachers are saying, we know God. No, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, knowing God is critical. Jeremiah 31, 
This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my heart in their my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a brother or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So knowing God is something in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, as Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the issue is not, oh, you claim to know God, that's rather presumptuous of you. No. The issue is, you say you know God, but by your behavior, no, you you, you don't know God. Your behavior contradicts what you say you are. Verse number four, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay? If you do not obey, then you do not know. Paul said the same thing about false teachers in Titus 1. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So how do I know if I have come to know God? John says if we keep his commandments. Only if we obey him can we claim to know him. And that means not to have accurate information about him, but to be personally acquainted with him. Well, this raises a huge issue. None of us can claim to be completely obedient, perfectly obedient. If I do not obey God in everything, how can I claim to know God? Well, we are told earlier that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And then in verse number one of chapter two, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We are to strive to obey. We are to desire to obey God. On the other hand, if obeying God is not a big thing to you, it's not a priority with you, I, you know, uh, I will do what I want to do, well, then we have a problem. Then we could say about such a person, you're a liar. That's a hard word. But you are lying. And the truth is not in you. On the other hand, if you obey God's word. You'll notice, if you look at verse number 5, John doesn't say, if you obey his commandments, sort of a legalism, but if you obey his word, the totality of God's revelation. If we do this, our love for God will, by God's grace, be made complete. So how am I supposed to obey God? The end, or Verse number 6 lays it out so clearly. We must walk as Jesus did. You know, instead of making a list of, okay, these are the rules, these are the things I'm supposed to do and these are the things I'm not supposed to do, what John says to us is, walk as Jesus did. Leave, live as Jesus did. I've said this before. In my opinion, when people say, you know, what would Jesus do? I think they're asking the wrong question. Rather, we should ask, what did Jesus do? 
And this is how we are to live our lives. So that is the first test. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if this person is a false teacher or a true, a true teacher. I, I don't know. Well, the first test is obedience. Do they obey the commands of God? Do they live as Jesus did? The second test is a social test. It's the test of love. Look, if you would, at verses 7 through 11. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The second test, how do we know if someone is in fact telling the truth, that is, that they are a professing Christian, but how do we know in fact if they are a child of God? It's whether or not they love the brothers, whether or not they have love for one another. Um, John's about to write about brotherly love, and so it seems appropriate that he begins with the words, dear friends, which he will do at least five more times in this letter. John has just talked about obeying God's commandments and walking as Jesus did. Well, Jesus told us that the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself, that the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, This is God's word. This is God's revelation. This is what we are supposed to do. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, um, and as I was preparing this, I didn't. It, it caught me off guard. But John doesn't tell us what the commandment is. I mean, I've been talking about it as though he's made. But he doesn't actually do so until verse number 10. You notice that? Verses 7, 8, and 9, he's talking about a new commandment, an old commandment. And what is the commandment? Well, because he talks about darkness then we begin to have a sense, and then when he gets to verse number 10, he talks about being in the light and loving our brothers. Jesus, the night before he was put to death, said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Walk as Jesus did. You must love one another. So the question is, John, is this an old commandment or is this a new commandment? Yes. It is an old commandment and it is a new commandment as well. In Leviticus chapter 19, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's where it comes from. Leviticus 19 verse 18. So in that sense, it is an old commandment. But I think there's something else. Uh, I think John means that this is sort of an old commandment because they've heard this from the beginning. Look, if you would, at verse number 24. It's beyond our text today. But 1 John 2, 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, and if it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And what was it that they heard from the beginning? Look at chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. That's... 
In that sense, it's old. This is, I heard this way back at the beginning, and in that sense, it is old. But then what is new? I mean, when you say old and new, I'm thinking Old Testament, New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Um, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Why is it new? Because it is seen in the person of Jesus. It isn't simply a command. It isn't a commandment. Walk as Jesus did. Jesus was, in fact, the embodiment of love. And in this sense, it is new. One writer put it this way. It was new in the emphasis he gave it. He said that the law and prophets hung on the two commandments to love your neighbor and to love the Lord your God. It is new in the quality he gave it. That is self-sacrifice. It is new in the extent he gave it. And here we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan helping those who are in need. In Jesus, the true light is already shining. In the Gospel of John, the prologue says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. He is the true light. True meaning real versus unreal. Not you know, true versus false, but true versus unreal. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is in darkness. So we have two pairs, light and love, darkness and hate. So if you say, I'm in the light, I believe in Jesus, I am a child of God, I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus, but you hate your brother, then that, that's not a match. That doesn't, that doesn't go together. Light and hate don't go together. So you're in darkness. On the other hand, if you say, I'm in the light and I love my brother, then John would say that this is a test. And if someone does that, then we would say this person is a child of God. I think as a pastor, John does not want them to have the impression that they are in darkness. Okay, That somehow they should doubt the reality of their Christian faith. So what he does, interestingly enough, we have three tests. We've done two but he digresses. He takes a detour and he deals with two particular issues. The first has to deal with the church, the people of God. And what he does, beginning in verse number 12, he gives us six statements about them, about three categories, children, old men, and young men. He gives us three statements in the present and three that are in the past with reality in the present. Unfortunately, the NIV and a lot of other English translations don't show this. They have everything in the present tense. Um, and I think the reason they do that is because all the consequences exist now in the present. So, the church. Look at verse number 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. John wants to be clear. If anyone has any doubt... Boy, John's writing some hard things. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Your sins have been forgiven. Verse 13. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Here, and this is a matter of opinion, but I think John is addressing those who are mature in the congregation. Those who would be considered fathers, elders in the congregation. 
those who have spiritual maturity, that they have known him who is from the beginning. They know God, and it is seen in their living. While all believers know God, it is the fathers who are seen as someone who has known him for some time. There is maturity, there is experience here. Then he says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. This is really interesting. Why young men? What does John mean? I would suggest, and it's only a suggestion, that he has in mind those who are in the thick of the battle. One is tempted to say those who are in ministry, but I I don't want to do that. But those who are in the day-to-day living of things are, are struggling. They are fighting. They are fighting the good fight. These are all present realities. Children, their sins have been forgiven. Fathers, you've known him who is from the beginning. And young men, you have overcome the evil one. How has this happened? Well, because of three things that have happened in the past. So I write to you, this is verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. It's because you've known the Father that your sins have been forgiven. Okay. I write to you, fathers, this is interesting here because John, in fact, repeats himself. Um, he sees those who have reached a certain level of maturity as not only having their sins forgiven, but they, in fact, well, they've fought the good fight. If you wish, one might even say at this point they're sort of retired. Um, but they have done what they should do. Their sins have been forgiven. They have fought the good fight. They have known him who is from the beginning. They become the pillars. They are the elders. They are the fathers of the congregation. And so John repeats what he says to them because this is really important. And then I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. One is reminded of the words from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think John is speaking to such people, those who have hidden God's word in their heart. So, this is the church, those who have been forgiven, those who know God, those who are fighting the good fight. So let's get to question number three, the third test. Um, No, not yet. There's another digression This time, it's about the world. He's talked about the people of God. Now he's talking about the world. And what is the church? What is supposed to be their, what is the appropriate attitude or stance vis-a-vis the world? Okay. This is the first time in this epistle that John will mention the word world. He will do so 17 more times. So this is a case, again, of starting small and building and building and building. And now he comes to the issue of the world. This digression begins in verse number 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So what is the world? 
Um, recently, I think in the last three years, a new translation of the New Testament has come out by David Bentley Hart. And at the end, he has some notes, scientific notes about translation. And he mentions that there are certain words that he does not translate into English. One of those words is logos. In the beginning was the word logos. He's like, that's just too big a word to put into one English word. So in the beginning was the logos. If you read his, that's what he puts. But the other word is world. And the word in Greek is cosmos. Cosmopolitan. And he will not translate cosmos as world. And so if you read his translation in this particular passage, cosmos shows up time after time. That's interesting, but it doesn't really help us. I think John helps us, though. He gives us insight into what it means. I think what the world is, is that which stands in opposition to God. You have God who is light. That is one of the foundational truths. You have God who has come in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, a foundational truth. The world is that which stands in opposition to that. It is the world who put Jesus to death. It is the world that is in darkness and tries to overcome the light, but it cannot. And so if we are in the light, we cannot, in fact, want to be a part of that system. We cannot love it, if you wish. That which stands in contrast, in contradiction to God the Father, we cannot love. We must either love the world or love God. We can't do both. The system that stands in opposition to God is marked by three things. Um, the cravings of a sinful man, that is, the stuff inside of us, okay? That is, our own inner desires, because we are fallen, because we are sinners, we have sinful desires. The second is the lust of his eyes. These are the things outside of us, that try to come in through our eyes and try to get us to sin. Um, it's sort of a lose-lose situation because our hearts already want to sin and then if there's something outside of us, it already has a collaborator within our own heart saying, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. But this is that which is outside of us. And the third is the boasting of what he has and does. In the King James and the ESV, it has the pride of life. I think what John is speaking of is pride in possessions, which certainly speaks to our society today. Um, John tells his readers two things about the world and its characteristics. This is not from the Father. Okay, These cravings, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what one has, um, yeah, this is not from God. And if, in fact, we embrace this, then we are in the darkness. We are in darkness. But there's something else. The second thing is, it is temporary. It's passing away. So if you would, in fact, be wise, if you just sit down and think about it, you have two choices. Be in the light or be in the darkness. In the darkness, your sinful nature can do what it wants. Um, it is assaulted by temptation and you can be filled with pride at what you have and what you've done. Or you can stay in the light. This darkness is temporary. This world is passing away. 
So that if you give what you are and who you are to this, it's a waste. It makes no sense because it is passing away. Whereas the light, God is light, God is eternal. So why would you go into darkness when in fact this is temporary and God and his love and his light are eternal? So make your choice, light or darkness, temporary or eternal. The false teachers have chosen darkness, claiming to be in the light, but they're in darkness. This is the world. The third test is the doctrinal test. And the Lord willing, this is what we will look at next Sunday. Because there are a whole lot of issues that John brings up that we need to wrestle with and settle. What John is doing in this epistle is as a pastor seeking to instruct his people as well as to answer, to challenge um, the false claims of these false teachers who say that what you believe doesn't is not seen in your, in your behavior. You can do whatever you want as long as you believe the right things. And John says this is simply not the case. That is, if you wish, an attitude of the world. And at the end of this, in this digression, he says that we are not to love the world. It's temporary, it's passing away. And yet, for some of us, the first memory verse we learned in Sunday school was John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And yes, David Bentley Hart put cosmos there again. But God loved the world. That which is darkness, that which hates him, which stands in opposition to him. God loved the world and gave his son so that people who believe in him would be saved. It's really quite remarkable. It's easy to love people who are nice, people who are like you. Um, It's something else to love those who hate you. That which stands in opposition to God, that which is temporary, that which is darkness, yet God gave his son to redeem it, to bring it out of darkness into light. And all we can say is praise be to God, his great love. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are overwhelmed by the reality of your love. A world in darkness, a world in rebellion, a world that you love, so much so that you gave your son. John writes this to instruct his people to instruct us that if we are your people, we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. We are not to live as people in darkness, being directed by lust, by temptations, by possessions, but by love for one another, by walking as Jesus did.
May your spirit drive these truths home to our hearts. And may we put into practice the things that we have heard. We thank you for your great love. Not just in the past, but that which sustains us day after day. Your tender mercies that are new every day. I thank you for bringing us together today. I pray for those that aren't with us. For Gia, who will be traveling in a short while. You give her safety. For others who will be traveling, for the Jones, for uh, Tess and others. Take them to their destination safely. And for those celebrating birthdays, for Georgie, for Marcus. We're so grateful for them. Watch over them as they grow, draw them to yourself. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.